I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You can follow us at Open Mind TV and support our series on Patreon at patreon.com slash the open mind. I'm delighted to welcome professor at the LBJ School at the University of Texas. Professor Sheena Chestnut Greitens is an expert on authoritarianism and China. Uh, professor, you're the author of Dictators and Their Secret Police, Coercive Institutions and State Violence by Cambridge University Press. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. Terrific to be on with you. Uh, Let me ask you about the definition of extreme competition. President Biden has used that to describe the American posture towards China resetting in this administration. Extreme competition, uh, not extreme adversaries, extreme competition. What does that mean in your estimation? And what do you think that means to the Chinese in their estimation? That's a terrific question. And it really gets at the heart of, you know, the the most important, probably and complex bilateral relationship in the world today, which is the relationship between the United States and the People's Republic of China. And, you know, in my view, what we've seen is that the administration is still sort of exploring and formulating exactly how it's going to describe its China policy. And it's doing so in an environment that's very, very different than when Vice President Joe Biden left office in 2016. The landscape as it relates to China policy is just completely different um, and would have been completely different even if you hadn't had Um, some of the features of competition that we saw emerge during the Trump administration, because many of the features of competition actually have to do with changes in Chinese behavior and Chinese security strategy. So the changes are are coming from and directed by um, the CCP and the government in Beijing. And I'm thinking there of things like policy toward the South China Sea, where remilitarization of islands and sort of a range of more proactive security behavior by the Chinese began um, actually under the Obama administration, or the decisions that China has taken in Hong Kong to tighten control there, or the escalation in Xinjiang, which really occurred in sort of um, the spring of 2017, and it's resulted in mass extrajudicial incarceration of an ethnic religious minority, the um, the Uyghur Muslims. And um, and all of those things are changes in Chinese behavior. So I think it's important to note that this idea of competition, um, you know, is something that the, the administration would have had to grapple with and definitely couldn't pick back up with where, where Joe Biden left off when he was vice president. It's just a different world that he's entering. And that's before you throw the global pandemic and COVID-19 into the mix. Um, So, you know, the formulation that I saw most recently, I thought was a really interesting one. Um, And that was from Secretary Tony Blinken, who said recently, our relationship with China will be competitive when it should be, collaborative when it can be, and adversarial when it must be. And we will engage with China from a position of strength. And then he goes on and and says some other things. But that sort of three-part formulation sounds like something that would be translated into Chinese, where these sort of formulaic phrases carry a lot of weight. Think about phrases like new type of major power relations or Xi Jinping's theory of national security with Chinese characteristics. or the China dream stuff, right? These these sort of catchphrases that try to encapsulate policy 
um, tend to carry a lot of interpretive weight in the U.S.-China relationship. And, um, you know, we're, we're still seeing, I think, the administration try to articulate what the right approach to its competition with China is. And, um, and also, you know, I think we're waiting for data on exactly how the Chinese are going to respond to whatever formulation the administration kind of settles on. But, you know, two months in, not quite two months into the administration, I think their way of framing strategic competition um, is competition is clearly central. But, you know, I think it's still a little bit in flux exactly how they're going to approach it. In practice, we haven't seen that much daylight from the previous administration, the Trump administration. Um, But we also don't have the full team in place, especially the folks like at the assistant secretary, deputy assistant secretary levels in state and defense and treasury and commerce who would um, who would be in charge of day to day execution. So, um, you know, I, I think we see an administration that's moving toward a coherent narrative, but that hasn't done the interagency process to sort of settle on a final encapsulated strategy yet. Is it fair to say that the Trump administration's revisitation of China policy was squarely in the economic order uh, on the tariffs, um, that there was not a pressure campaign on human rights, or at least not a genuine one, beginning to bring back the discussion from the Clinton presidency, specifically former Senator Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, who delivered probably in our lifetimes the most stark rhetorical rebuke of China and how far we veered from any real policy discussion of human rights abuses. The last four years were primarily discussing economic abuses. Do you see the Biden administration as merely doubling down on the economic abuses or venturing into the human rights abuses? So I think you'll see a different approach in economic policy, but also that you'll see changes to security and policies around global democracy and and human rights. But let me back up for a moment in answering that question and say that I do think, obviously, that changes to the sort of conventional wisdom on U.S.-China, the U.S.-China economic relationship was at the heart or one of the centerpieces of the Trump administration's China strategy. But I think that there were um, elements of it where um, I think saying that it was sort of solely about economic policy would exclude some important challenges, certainly that folks like Matt Pottinger, who became Dep- Deputy uh, National Security Advisor, H.R. McMaster and others, saw in the security and indeed in the human rights field. Remember that Matt Pottinger started as a Wall Street Journal reporter. And so Um, and experienced some of China's uh, sort of repressive treatment of journalists and citizens firsthand in that capacity before he ever went into a a governmental position. And if you look at the Trump national security strategy, it actually defines the geopolitical competition as one that is between free and repressive visions of world order. So that's inherently more about democracy and freedom than even about the economic dimensions of the relationship. Now, the issue, which I think your comment highlights pretty well, is that the administration was not monolithic. You had a lot of different actors with opinions about China policy. And um, and there were cases where people, up to and including the president himself, 
um, didn't sort of adhere to their own strategy. Um, so, for example, the report of, of you know President Trump's comment to Xi Jinping about the, the camps in Xinjiang is sort of the the easiest and and sort of most significant example to point to. Um, but there's been a you know some some good writing I think about how the administration didn't always follow its own China strategy. Um, or at least it had internal splits where um, there was tension over whether and how to adhere to the strategy that was laid out. So I think the strategy as it was formulated on paper had a sort of, you know, maybe even a central role for for issues of democracy that, that didn't entirely get carried through in practice. And I think you're likely to see, but the Biden administration has signaled that democracy is going to be front and center, that human rights will be front and center. Um, But we've also seen that the administration will sort of tailor exactly how it pursues that um, to the practicalities of geopolitics. And I'm thinking here not of China policy per se, but of the recent example of how to handle um, the intelligence community's report on on the murder that Saudi Arabia um, was involved in at the consulate in Turkey. And so uh, I think it would be a little bit, I think it would be a mistake to sort of paint this as black and white. I think there were elements of the Trump administration where human rights abuses in Xinjiang, there were very senior people who cared deeply about that um, and who were highly motivated by those abuses. Um, And I think there are, you know, that's a very, very strong theme and maybe a more coherent theme, emerging theme of the Biden administration. Um, But I also think that we shouldn't uh, assume that that means that that these democracy and human rights considerations will always trump other definitions or conceptions of the, the national interest. Um, you know, the sort of personal opinion about that decision aside, I think what it suggests is um, is a willingness to modify this emphasis on democracy and human rights at times where the administration sees a countervailing, you know, a strong countervailing interest. So I, it's just, that's just a caution to say that um, I don't think this is a stark either or um, under either administration. I do think, you know, the Biden administration has indicated that it is going to make um, democracy and human rights central. And it's appointed people um, who have a history of doing that. Um, in particular, I'm thinking about the senior director for China at the NSC. Laura Rosenberger has been working a lot on a project called the Alliance for Securing Democracy. Um, and so to have that person running national security policy suggests that democracy will play a very, very central role and will be the framing through which national security interests are often filtered in the interagency process. Um, so I think that's, you know, that's kind of the way that I, I see the shift that is is emerging. Um, but I haven't seen enough about the the direction um, that economic policy is going to go, except for the, the recent USTR hearing, um, where the nominee indicated that the administration very much would seek to hold China to its, its um, existing commitments under the trade deal and expected those to be fulfilled. Um, but again, exactly how that fits in a larger strategy usually takes an administration six months to a year and the first budget and the first national security strategy before we quite get a sense of how all the pieces add up. So those are the things that I'll be watching for in the months ahead. We're speaking with Sheena Chestnut-Greitens, an associate professor at the LBJ School 
as well as a distinguished scholar with the Strauss Center for International Security and Law and a faculty fellow with the Clements Center for National Security. With respect to a governing body that is capable of any kind of oversight, the reality is notwithstanding all of the newfound commitment within this State Department possibly to negotiation, diplomacy, and decisive actions to secure human rights, I think we all recognize that neither the United States nor any multilateral body is really positioned to affect change in China with respect to its massive surveillance operation of its own people, with respect to its internment of minorities in what have been described as concentration camp-like conditions, I think we, we know that there is no vehicle through which there can be um, reform or restorative measures implemented on any kind of expedited or efficient timetable, right? This is a process that would take years, not months, yeah, I think that's right. And I think, you know, one of the d- the difficult and thorny challenges for the United States is to deal with China as it is, not necessarily as we want it to be. Um, but there's this formulation that um, I believe it was Bob Zellick used to use when he, he talked about China, where he talked about, you know, dealing with China as it is today, but still working for the China that we would like to see in the future. And so there are certainly areas where I think the United States can and should push on and try to alter Chinese behavior in a way that is, you know, more compatible with the core, you know, security and economic interests of of the citizens of the United States, for sure, Um, but also in trying to set an architecture for the Indo-Pacific, where countries are free to choose how they want to do things without coercion from China. And the issue that you have there is the partners that are, um, you know, that look to the United States for security and China for their economic um, well-being, um, which characterizes much of East Asia, both North and South, uh, much of the Indo-Pacific, um, you know, makes it a really that a really challenging thing for the United States and its allies and partners to, to try to ensure. And so I really see that, um, you know, no matter the administration, the, the thrust of U.S. policy is is more likely to be there about protecting U.S. interests, about, um, you know, sort of denying the ability of China to alter, you know, the capacity of partners to make their own choices. Um, and and that, that's a really important goal because we've seen cases in which China's tried to use economic coercion and, um, you know, various forms of, of pressure to to try to convince countries um, or pressure countries into going along with with China's preferred way of doing business, whether it's the Philippines or you know Taiwan and the whole recent pineapple uh, issue, um, or Australia, or you know this is something that goes back to Norway's experience after the 2010 Nobel Peace Prize ceremony. Um, so you know figuring out how 
like-minded countries, how democratic partners can share common standards on uh, making sure that technology is used in ways that are compatible with democracy, making sure that economic coercion isn't used to bully or coerce countries into doing things that they wouldn't freely choose to do and that aren't in their interest. You know, those are all really important policy goals. And um, I, I think that that's likely to be the focus and the emphasis in U.S. policy going forward, um, while still also trying to support, you know, the rights of of citizens in China to live free of state coercion and state violence whenever possible. Um, and that, I think, is what you're seeing with, with the discussion about Xinjiang. When you think of the narrative around the pandemic, you can't help but cynically appreciate the fact that if China's data are to be, if those data are to be viewed as legitimate, the world has suffered far more gravely outside of Chinese borders uh, with respect to infections and deaths. Now, that's an open question as far as whether or not Chinese data are accurate and whether their fatalities and death counts are much higher than they say. But if you were just to assess it cynically, when we think of the damage that this virus has done, it has been a global conflagration, but not a Chinese conflagration. And I wonder in your own research about attitudes towards China, and yes, Chinese attitudes towards the world, if you think that there is a recognition that this can go in one of two directions, there can be some reconciliation process, or there can be the opposite. And there can be te- tensions that, that escalate to the point of the world, including the United States, viewing this virus through that geopolitical animus for years, if not decades to come. And the fact that it really has not boiled over there yet, but that it could. Yeah. You know, part of the issue here is that a lack of transparency and information distortion are baked into the Chinese political system itself. And so, you know, at this point, I think the debate is largely about, you know, whether the information distortion was within the Chinese bureaucracy and who reported what up to the leadership and and then, or sort of an additional question of how transparent the folks at the top who interface with the outside world were with the outside world. And then those hypotheses are not mutually exclusive, right? And information could have been withheld and distorted in, in both places, um, which is uh, there's, there's some pretty good evidence on, on both fronts that that information wasn't forthcoming both within the Chinese system and, and from the Chinese system to the WHO and the United States and, and global, the international community. Um, so I think that's, you know, something, um, I, I think that's a, a debate that science can only get us so far on because the issue of accountability of culpability and responsibility really isn't a sort of precise scientific question that can be answered about how many cases there were where and when that's part of the story. Um, but this is also about, you know, beliefs about when somebody has a responsibility to act and communicate certain information upwards and outwards to the world. Culpability and whether or not 
that might intensify in the eyes of Americans and global citizens outside of China, that right now we're trying to recover, but that there could be an intensification of anti-China bias as a result of feeling that they caused damage to our lives and livelihoods and that they actually didn't experience the brunt of, of what they sowed. Well, that's clearly happening. And it's happening not just in the United States, but or, but in various places around the world where trust in China is very, very low compared to historically how it's fluctuated. In the United States, it's actually lower right now, according to the, a poll that just came out from Gallup. Trust in and approval of China is lower today at 20% than it was after the Tiananmen Square massacre, which took place in June of 89, um, where approval dropped from 70% to 34%. Um, so, you know, we're at, we're at really an all-time low in American public perceptions of China, um, largely due to beliefs about China's handling of the pandemic. And that disapproval is bipartisan. It's slightly stronger among Republicans, typically, depending how much depends on exactly which poll you read. Um, but disapproval is bipartisan. And so, I, you know, I think this is really a sort of sea change in public opinion foundation for the U.S.-China relationship. But like I said, it also combines with, you know, um, some people have said, oh, well, maybe this is sort of a matter of the Trump administration's anti-China rhetoric. But that doesn't really explain why we've seen the same slide in in public opinion of China in other places around the world, um, which Pew and a couple of other folks have tracked. So so China's sort of public image problem here is not just a U.S. problem. It's a global problem. And we've seen a lot of effort by China to, um, you know, do a lot of image management, to do a lot of PR and propaganda up to and including sort of questioning the efficacy of the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines, which I think is really, really dangerous for global health, um, both in the United States and and just just globally. The consequences of um, questioning vaccine safety could be incredibly damaging and long lasting. Um, and so, I, you know, I think the we've seen a lot of effort from China to promote its model of response um, that I think is recognized that is based on a recognition that it had some serious damage control that it, that, that the party needed to do. Um, but that actually has been only partially successful. And we're still, I think, I, I don't think the story is written yet because we've seen, you know, discussion recently, the administration has been talking about how it's going to work on global distribution of vaccines. China has, um, you know, jumped out of the gate very early, distributing vaccines, including to U.S. partners like the Philippines, right, a, a treaty ally in Asia. Um, but the efficacy of those those vaccines is much more questionable, and the data to substantiate how effective they are um, hasn't been released in a way that would satisfy, um, you know, the U.S. CDC or scientific community. And so, you know, I think we're we're not the story hasn't been written yet, but there's no question that there's been a global blow to China's image because of its handling of the pandemic. Um, you know, regardless of exactly where the information distortion occurred, it's clear that that happened within China. Um, and so therefore, I think what you're seeing is the global publics are holding China accountable for that. Final question. When you think of the ultimate manifestations of that unprecedented lowest ever 
U.S. confidence in China, something that obviously is occurring in Australia now with the tensions there, but around the world. And you think of it in the and contextualize it in the context of the rise of illiberalism in Eastern Europe, um, the new authoritarianism uh, in places like Hungary, um, and even in the West, the threat of that authoritarianism and a new bigotry. Um, you do see relative stability in the traditional U.S. allies in the region, South Korea, Japan. Um, but if you were just to assess kind of the potential of where this is going um, with respect to, you know, the, the U.S.-China relationship, but also the idea of democratic values versus illiberal, you know, sort of an illiberal or anti-democratic foothold in the Asian Pacific, where, where do you think we're going? Yeah, I think we're at a, a, a moment where we do risk some significant democratic and illiberal backsliding. Um, we were actually in a period, you know, the way political scientists measure it, we were actually in a period of democratic backsliding before the pandemic hit. And China's model of pandemic response that it's offering as a model to the world is heavily tied into the surveillance and social control project that Xi Jinping was already constructing in China before the outbreak of the coronavirus there. Um, I've written a, a piece in Foreign Affairs with a co-author where we, we talk about the relationship and the fact that both public health and public security use this catchphrase, preventing control. Um, and so, uh, you know, in order to do preventive public health and, you know, prevent uh, social instability, which is one of the CCP's main goals, you have to, prevention requires very, very targeted and early information before people actually do anything. Um, and so the implications of that for surveillance are fairly profound. Um, you know, and I think the, the issue is that um, when I've looked at this, the at least the first six or nine months of data on the pandemic is that what we saw was not so much that the pandemic was undermining electoral democracy and the institutions around elections and voting and participation, but it was undermining the liberalism part of liberal democracy. And so it was leading to increased police presence, um, a weakening of checks on executive power, constraints on the press, um, police abuses in lockdown enforcement, um, and that that was occurring um, you know, in, in places that were either already authoritarian or some places that were kind of unconsolidated or weak democracies. And, you know, so so my concern as I look at this is that this was this created a state of emergency where extraordinary measures or intrusive measures are justified. And we don't historically we know that once those measures get put in place, they can be difficult to roll back. Um, restrictions on, on civil liberties and surveillance that are put in place in a crisis can be tough because nobody wants to be the person that gets rid of that and then has something go wrong on their watch. Um, and then that provides a pretext for autocrats to, you know, use those tools in politically repressive ways. Now, the bright spot I think that we could use and I very much hope the world looks at is that there are places that had past experience with a pandemic or an infectious disease outbreak. South Korea had MERS in 2015, Taiwan had SARS in 2003, and they actually, after that, 
went back and rewrote their legislation using a fully democratic process. It was debated by the legislature. It was, you know, screened. It went through judicial review. And they said, okay, in these emergency conditions, which specific powers are we going to give the government? How are we going to limit them so that they're necessary and proportional? And how do we keep democratic accountability and review? And then finally, when do they end? Right. Under what conditions do we say to the government, you can't do this anymore, the emergency's over? And that was all defined in law. And so we have a model of democracy compatible um, or pandemic response. Is it perfect? No. Um, but it at least gives us a sense that there are places that have tried to grapple with this and that have come up with a first cut of how we could make pandemic response compatible with democracy and put guardrails and firewalls in place to ensure that, you know, under emergency conditions, we don't sign off on an erosion of liberal democracy that's going to be much harder to get back later. Sheena Greitens, professor at the LBJ School at the University of Texas. Thank you so much for your insight today. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.